Welcome to the Scholarly Soup podcast brought to you by the University of Queensland Library. In this podcast series, we are going to meet with amazing women who found their success in academic and professional roles at the University of Queensland. They are resilient, smart, proactive, and more importantly, they're now working together to implement systemic changes that could make your career progression that little bit easier. If success breeds success, then listen to their stories and learn from the best. In this episode, I'm talking with Professor Deborah Terry, the Vice-Chancellor and President of the University of Queensland. Professor Terry was made an officer in the General Division of the Order of Australia in June 2015 in recognition of her distinguished service to education in the tertiary sector. An accomplished psychology scholar and successful academic administrator, she serves on various high-level advisory boards, committees and councils, and has previously served as Vice-Chancellor of Curtin University in Western Australia. In this interview, I ask Debbie, who rules the world? Welcome, Professor Debbie Terry. You know, Debbie, when I heard the announcement that Professor Debbie Terry is going to be a new vice chancellor at the University of Queensland, internally I was screaming, and she is a woman. And for me, that was a celebration of diversity and a true recognition of leadership over gender. But I actually wanted to start with a question that is a little bit provocative. Who rules the world, Debbie? Well, uh, and uh, Eleanor, delighted to be here and um, it is a great privilege to be to be in this role and uh, very, very uh, happy to be having this conversation today. Well, I guess there's, there's no one person or, or one gender uh, that rules the world. But of course, as we know, historically, more power has been in the hands of men uh, than in the hands of women. And I think there has been considerable progress uh, in terms of equalising that power dynamic over the past 50 years or, or so, but there's always more that we can do. And if you look at the ranks of our political and business leaders, our power structures are still male-dominated in, in, in many areas. So I think it's something we need to keep working on because absolutely the, the literature, the data are very, very clear that the more balance you have in terms of leadership, the better outcomes you get. So the more you've got uh, a balanced uh, executive table, leadership table, uh, that you've got both males and females in, in leadership positions, the better outcomes you get. And that will be across all of society. It will be in relation to economics, in politics, in business and certainly in universities as well. That's a really, really good um, overview of that. Um, but we, we also know, Debbie, that Professor Peter Hoy was really known for his commitment to the development of the cohesive um, gender diversity strategy. And there is still a lot of work that needs to be done here at UQ. So as, a, as the most senior leader, what role are you playing in dismantling the barriers impending women's career progression and what are your commitments? Yeah, no, and I absolutely support uh, Peter Hoy's absolute commitment to a strong gender diversity strategy. That's absolutely something that we need to have in place and it's something that we all need to be 
committed to. And there's, there's, there's more work that we need to do. I think it, it starts with just acknowledging that there are barriers uh, still for women. We need to acknowledge those barriers. We need to be conscious of those barriers and we need to think about ways of overcoming them. And sometimes I think in, in this area, there's a lot of um, emphasis placed on uh, you know, where the discrepancies are, where the differences are, and that's important. But you have to go further. You have to acknowledge those barriers and you have to think about the ways in which we can effectively address them. And so, you know, that's something that I'm, I'm very committed to doing. It's about ensuring that we've got the right culture right through our whole organisation. It's ensuring that we are all consciously aware of um, biases that may occur in our decision making, but also that we understand where those barriers are and that we absolutely uh, seek to deal with them. So, for instance, you know, if we've got early career uh, researchers uh, coming back after a period of parenting leave, what do they need to ensure that their research stays on track? That will vary depending whether they're involved in laboratory research or other research. What do they need to ensure that they're able to keep uh, attending their major conferences, their major international meetings, their national meetings to ensure that they stay in touch with their collaborators? They're the things we need to understand and then uh, we need to put in place strategies to deal with those issues. That's a really good reassurance, Debbie. Um, but I actually wanted now to take you back to the beginning of your career um, how did your interest in psychology emerge and why did you choose in all of all the places to work in the academia? Yeah, no, it's, I think I was, I was always interested and I mean I would, wouldn't have been able to articulate it in this way but certainly as a, a, a high school student I was always interested in human behaviour and really interested in what explains human behaviour. I think all of us as humans know that there's a vast array of different ways in which humans respond to different situations. They behave in different ways. We behave in different ways. And I was always fascinated in terms of what are the factors that underpin our, our behaviour. So for me, uh, studying psychology uh, was, I think, a bit of a no-brainer. I was always uh, very interested in it. And once I, I got uh, started studying at ANU um, in psychology, it was very clear to me that that was where I wanted to focus. But I was always, always interested in uh, not, not only teaching as a PhD student. I, I got very involved in uh, tutoring and teaching and I found that I really enjoyed that. But I, I always knew that I wanted to focus in on research because actually psychology is the scientific study of human behaviour. And for me, many of our unanswered questions are in psychology. And it's, it's, it, it is so exciting being able to spend, you know, for me, a large part of my career thinking about, well, how, how would I design a research study to test that hypothesis in relation to this is the way... Uh, humans will behave in this particular situation. It was always exciting. It was always uh, exciting to be able to design those studies, to think through being able to get one step further in, in, in my field, which was uh, really studying the way humans behave in social situations, to be able to uh, solve, you know, just 
incrementally uh, those those unanswered questions. So so for me, uh, academia um, was was always a logical place where I would end up. And I think I've having spent you know all of my career essentially working in universities. Universities are wonderful places, and it's been a privilege uh, to have had the career that I've had. Yeah, it certainly has a very special vibe here, isn't it? Debbie, the next question I have for you is a little bit personal, but I think many women, um, irrespective of where they actually work, that could connect with what you have experienced. And can you please tell us about the time when you learned about your pregnancy uh, and how you actually had that first conversation with your supervisor? (laughs) Yes, no, I think I was probably in some ways privileged. I'd... uh, uh, grown up in a family that was very supportive of education. I, I spent um, my my high school um, in a, uh, a single sex school. I went to boarding school, but there was sort certainly no no um, I think views that uh, my ambitions would be curtailed as a function of being female. I was just and, and I do count myself as 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 having been very fortunate. And then, obviously, I, I was an undergraduate at ANU, did honours, and then moved into my PhD. And I, my, my, my supervisor was, was very strong. He was a great research supervisor and certainly taught me a huge amount. And I was in my final year of my PhD, and I, I said to him uh, one day that, um, you know, I was expecting my, my, my first child. And I was quite surprised at the time because he took a while to to answer and then he just looked at me and he said you'll never make it it's impossible uh to to make it in academia um if you you know essentially do have family responsibilities so i i was quite shocked because um as i say i had never i'd had uh you know wonderful experiences in in terms of and you know nobody saying that i guess what I wanted to do wouldn't be possible. But I guess he gave me a bit of a challenge and um, and it always stayed in my mind. He, he stays in my mind as a very strong research supervisor and maybe in a way he, he, he was doing me a favour because I've always thought, no, I, I, I will be able to, to, to make it. But also I think it left me with a strong commitment to ensuring that my uh, students and 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 my early my younger collaborators would also make it, and that's why you've actually mentioned that commitment. You know, um, for early career researchers, what they actually need when they come back from the parent leave and so on. So that's fantastic coming from your experience to a sense. You know, you understand how it feels. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. Debbie, um, do you actually believe in the glass ceiling in research? Well, if you say, for example, if we look at the Nobel Prize winners, only 3% of women have ever been awarded a Nobel Prize. So do you think there is uh, still a lot of barriers to success in academic world for women? I think, you know, I think there are obviously still still some barriers and um and and we need to keep addressing those. I, I think it is, you know, in terms of if we just take the example of, of Nobel Prizes or, um, you know, other major awards in, in research, we are, we are seeing, seeing things change. We are seeing 
um, you know, more of our our professors are female. We we we're seeing you know more females being awarded you know major research fellowships and major awards, but we also know that there are significant barriers. Uh, you know, and and a lot of it comes back to career breaks, being able to maintain, uh, you know, very cutting edge uh, research programs uh, when you have time off for parenting responsibilities, and a lot of you know big big research um, answering you know the big questions is international, it's global research. So it's being able to stay connected with global communities, to be part of large global studies, uh, being able to, you know, not not lose that that momentum. I think there is is much better understanding and I think we will see, you know, in the next years to come that there will be more female, not not only Nobel Prize winners, but but other uh, winners of other major prizes, but uh, the focus needs to remain on funding agencies uh, to ensure that any judgments about capability are relative to opportunity. We as universities need to provide as much support as we can across those pe- periods where leave may need to be taken. If all of us are conscious about it, all of us are proactive, then I think we will see changes. That's fantastic. That's really nice to hear. Uh, I actually wanted now to ask you, Debbie, about um, the time when someone senior told you, you will soon learn that it's even more rewarding to be in a position of leadership where you can help others to develop. Who was it? Well, it's actually um, uh, an emeritus professor from here at the University of Queensland, uh, Professor David Siddle, who, of course, is well known to many, uh, having been a a former Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research. uh, And he was also head of the School of Psychology when I began my career at the University of Queensland uh, many, many years ago, but uh, a very strong uh, head of school, a uh, fantastic Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research, and I was privileged uh, to certainly be able to count him as one of my mentors. So was it um, a moment when your career was taking some turn? Yes, it was when I was uh, deciding whether I would put my hat in the ring for um, heads of schools roles uh, in psychology, obviously my, my discipline. And I can remember having a discussion with him as to you know, how how would I be able to, or, or expressing the view that I thought it would be difficult for me uh, to move out of my uh, quite hands-on uh, research role and also my role working, supervising honours and PhD students and also in the classroom. And, uh, you know, as uh, his advice was very clear, that in a sense, when you move into leadership, positions in um, academia, in universities, you're not, you're not moving away from the importance of those contributions, but you are uh, then in a position where you help set up the environment for others to be successful. And he was absolutely right. And, and in many ways, and in all ways, it is actually more rewarding uh, to be able uh, to at least play some uh, role in in setting up the environment here at at, at UQ uh, for uh, early career researchers, early career academics, other staff uh, to be successful and have the opportunities that I had. So, 
it is very important to have a good mentor in uh, in your life, is it? Did you have other strong mentors that really changed your perception possibly, you know, uh, of the system or your understanding of how to progress? Yeah, no, I think it's always, you know, it's important uh, to have those people that you can talk to about, um, you know, possible uh, plans that, you know, you you may have for your career. But also I think it's important to have the people who you can have those conversations, direct, honest conversations with as to the kinds of things you need to to focus on if you are to uh, be able to make uh, the next step, to be able to give you frank uh, advice, but also uh, to help uh, direct you in, in terms of the kinds of opportunities you 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 should be seeking to avail yourself of. And I mean, often uh, when you're dealing with uh, women and leadership, mentor, mentorship's really important, but sponsorship is also important. And I think when, you know, many studies of differences between males and females in, in relation to their leadership journeys is that women often don't receive as much sponsorship as, as males do. You know, having their name put forward for you know, being involved in um, uh, committees or other opportunities where they get to get some of that experience that will help them uh, in terms of their next step. So I'm very conscious of that uh, now, um, you know, obviously that I'm uh, often in a mentoring role, that it is also about putting people's names forward, uh, being able to uh, suggest names, you know, people will often ask me, you know, who who, who might be a, appropriate for, you know, this 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 committee or this role and, and, and that you're you're able to uh, engage not only in the mentoring, which is, are those very important one on one discussions, but also some of that sponsorship. Debbie, how would you describe your own leadership and has it actually changed? Has it evolved as you were progressing in your career? Yes, I, I mean, I, I think it has. I think with my uh, own leadership, I do, I do, um, tr- you know, I'm, I'm consultative, um, and I do, um, I'm, I'm very committed to being as open as I can. Uh, obviously, with staff and with colleagues, but at the same time, you know, understanding obviously the importance of being able to articulate very clearly challenges and and you know the way forward all things all things considered you know i think for me um you know talking out, outside of my own experience i think the best the best leaders are are very clearly are led and and grounded by by values and 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 that's something that i think is critically important that if you're very clear what your own values are and you're very aligned with the values um, of, of, of the institution or the area that you have the privilege to lead, then I think uh, that's a, a, a very good way of underpinning, you know, very strong leadership. Yeah, so setting those expectations, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, was there anything that was particularly challenging in your leadership experience? 
I think as as leaders and, you know, I think uh, all of our, you know, large organisations, our university, they're, they're there are many, many leaders in our in our community. I think all of us face uh, challenging uh, experiences. You know, some of those you know challenging experiences are often around you know having to make uh, difficult decisions, um, and you know they may be difficult decisions at an individual level. They may be in difficult decisions in terms of direction. Uh, in you know being. Uh, you know, shaping perhaps decisions that an institution might make. You know, I, I always am grounded by, you know, um, ultimately it's about being able to ask yourself the question, what ought one to do in this circumstance? And uh, I think Simon Longstaff always describes it very well as that kind of moral courage. And for me, that's, you know, when you are faced with those difficult decisions, challenging situations, it's always being able to to say to yourself, well, what, what ought I to do now? What, what morally is the right decision? And I think that's a, a useful guide because often what you find is that there, you know, it's very clear what, what, what you ought to do. And, and once that becomes clear, yes, it's still challenging, but... Um, you know, you just have to work through the details there. Very stressful role you're in. <laughs> okay. Well, talking about leadership, I actually wanted to uh, read from my notes. Um, in March 2017, a report was launched by Women Count looking at the university sector in Australia. The data revealed that only one in four vice chancellors and one in six chancellors are women. Further, the report was celebrating that over half of universities um, have agenda-balanced boards, with 41% of governing body members being women. However, 85% of chancellors who chair these governing bodies are men, and only 25% of vice-chancellors, those in the most critical and visible CEO leadership positions, are women. The report is obviously based on the data from 2016, but I was wondering if there is any change. Have you seen any change? And do you find it sometimes challenging at the high-level meetings um, to be, you know, to stand up, to speak up? (laughs) How do you deal with that pressure? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think things are changing. I mean, I think if you look at Queensland, for instance, you know, all three vice-chancellors of our uh, Brisbane-based universities are currently female, which is great. Um, And then we've obviously got other female leaders at the University of Sunshine Coast, James Cook University, uh, the University of Southern Queensland. So, you know, certainly across our sector, there are, you know, I think an, an increasing number of women being appointed to uh, vice chancellor roles obviously it's a it's a relatively small pool you know 39 universities so you know you will get fluctuation in 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 percentages over time but overall i think if you were to look at the trend um things are certainly certainly improving and, you know and i think we we uh, i think universities and indeed state governments, which are um, responsible for 
um, appointments to governing boards of universities are very conscious of having uh, gender balance. Um, so that's, you know, you are seeing uh, the um, gender makeup of, of university senates and, and university councils. I think it, that that is changing. Um, as I say, I think there's a, a strong focus on that from, from state governments. Um, so, you know, progress is certainly being made. That's fantastic. And Debbie, do you think actually your degree in psychology helps you navigate that very complex gender imbalanced, high leadership environment? Oh, I think, you know, I think I think certainly uh, a bit of, um, you know, uh, a background in, in, in psychology is certainly helpful, I think. You know, you've you've you know certainly got a at a high level a pretty good understanding of um, the ways you know the the factors that influence human behaviour and um, so no it's certainly it's certainly I think uh, been been helpful uh, along my leadership journey. And what do you enjoy most in your current role? Oh, I think I mean it's it's a huge privilege. I mean, you know, I, I think you know universities are amazing places. They do amazing things, and it doesn't matter how long you've been at you know even you know one university. You just discover, um, you know, there'll be particular work that's being undertaken with students or in research or enriching our communities at all levels of our institutions. So you know, I think I think probably what I what I enjoy most is 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 that exposure. I mean, you know, universities are an absolutely core part of strong civic societies. So to be in a leadership position of institutions of such importance is, is a huge privilege, and you know, to have some small impact, uh, one would hope on 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 the profile, reputation, direction of one of those institutions is something, you know, that as as I say, it's a huge privilege uh, and 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 a huge honour. Debbie, how can you balance your work work life balance? How can you achieve that? And and in that, I wanted to ask as well, what's the most interesting or uh, enjoyable thing you like to do outside of your role? Well, my um, I, I, my husband certainly keeps me me very grounded, which is 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 uh, uh, very very good, and 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 certainly my um, adult children. But I think outside outside of the role, I I, I enjoy spending time with friends and family, and uh, you know, uh, getting out on on bike and uh, walking and and things. I I, I really enjoy. Um, you know, uh, not 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 hugely skilled, but uh, enjoy it. And uh, probably in my spare time, I'm a great reader, and I've always been somebody who's really enjoyed reading. So that's something that, uh, if ever I've got a spare moment, I'll I'll often go pick up a novel. Debbie, if you were able to travel back in time, what advice would you give your 20 year old self? Yeah, I think you know, I think it's. Uh, it's a it's a it's a good question. I, I often, when I'm talking to um, uh, early career staff, I'll often encourage them uh, to step out of their 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 comfort zone. Uh, obviously, to seek new opportunities and to seek new collaborations. And I think it, you know, at many points in my career, I thought, my goodness, I can't do that. I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not ready for that, or I I, I don't. 
you know, know everything about it. I, I, I think being able to do that really does, does help you um, grow as a person. Um, it, it means that you're able to develop the kind of skills and understanding that really help you when you go into, you know, broader, broader leadership roles. So that would be, you know, certainly something uh, that, that I would be encouraging my younger self uh, to have done uh, even more. And, um, and, and, you know, I think it is important to surround yourself with, with people who have complementary strengths and, and complementary perspectives and, and, and not, to be, not to be, I guess, afraid of, of, of doing that or, or, or of not being fully in control of a, a particular situation or, or not being, you know, entirely confident that you know everything about something because I think, you know, that is the way uh, absolutely to, to develop. But I think, you know, as, 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 as leaders... You know, it doesn't matter what level you are. You know, you do you do have to avoid the trap of arrogance, and and I think humility is is critically important. You know, at, at whatever stage you are. But probably to my younger self, I I would have said, you know, remember to be compassionate, uh, not not only to others but also to yourself. I think often, uh, you know, younger. Younger women are often very hard on themselves. They're very, um, you know, they're they're perhaps driven uh, to be, you know, perfect in every every aspect of their their lives. And I think, you know, give yourself a bit of bit of latitude. Um, you know, you, you're managing a lot during those those busy years as you develop your career and um, you know manage manage. Uh, other responsibilities. So I think be be kind to yourself and uh, realise that you you are, are are probably doing a very good job, and everybody else is managing with 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 some of the same stresses as you are. Thank you so much, Debbie. That was uh, amazing to to hear your perspective, understand what drives you um, in this role. Um, so thank you. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, thank you. It's been great to have the conversation with you. Thanks, Eleanor. That's it for this episode of Women Finding Success. The podcast series was initiated by the Sage Athena Swan team at the University of Queensland. Thanks to Workplace Diversity and Inclusion Team and Gender Steering Committee for their support and coordination. The series is produced by Dr. Elena Danilova with technical production by John Anderson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe or write a review on the platform you get your podcast from. Thank you for listening.